Hey there, welcome to XR Industry Leaders with ArborXR. My name is Brad Scoggin, and I am the CEO and one of three co-founders of ArborXR. We've had the opportunity of working with thousands of companies since 2016. And we've learned a ton about what it takes for XR to be successful in your organization. And I'm Will Stackable, co-founder and CMO. This podcast is all about interviewing the leaders who are on the ground making XR happen today. True pioneers in the space, from Amazon, Walmart, and UPS, to Coke, Pfizer, and beyond to uncover the pitfalls, lessons learned, and secrets that you can use to help grow XR in your organization. Well, Chris, thanks for sitting down with us today. I'm excited to jump in. Same here. Very nice to be here. Uh, so <clears throat> always love to hear about uh, your personal journey, kind of. So maybe maybe start by just sharing with our listeners, uh, for you, what was your process of uh, moving into XR personally? Yeah, sure. So as, as you may already hear, I'm French, uh, but I live in London. I'm in London right now. Um, and I moved here in 2010. And until 2015, I worked in uh, social media, uh, trying to convince CMOs that it wasn't a fad for teenagers, having no idea how far it would um, it would come from for better or worse. And, and in, in 2015, I was starting to look around, looking for interesting people. There was this VR thing going on, which from a storytelling point of view was was quite interesting and I did some research and I met one rainy February afternoon in a in a pub in in Shoreditch I met with Julia uh, who had brought the DK1 I don't know if you remember the Oculus DK1 so massive gaming laptop the the two like towers the huge headsets in the middle of a pub right and so everyone's looking at us and um, and it shows me an experience called the Night Cafe. Have you tried that one? Hmm. No, no. My my first in the DK one was the roller coaster, which made me sick. But <laughs> yeah, no, like like that's pretty much everyone's first experience. And obviously, the first one we created was a roller coaster, which was a terrible idea, and and everyone's made that mistake. <laughs> um, but that day, he showed me the Night Cafe, which is uh, the name of a painting by Vincent Van Gogh, and a guy had recreated the painting in three D, right? So applying the same brush to the environment, but you could walk inside a painting. Um, and we've all, we, all, we all have that my first few seconds in the VR story. And that was mine. It was so powerful. I've always been into storytelling. And so, yeah, I essentially picked up my jaw from the floor. Uh, and a few <laughs> weeks later, I quit my job and started a, a VR storytelling agency with Julia. Um, so it was the beginning. So we did roller coasters, we did 360, we did, uh, you know, like embodied experience, a uh, little bit of everything. That's and how this it's is done. 20, that's 2016? That's, yeah, 20, yeah, 2016, 2017. 2016, okay. Yeah, my my, uh, my first experience was not as um, uh, cultured as yours. Mine was um, the zombie training simulator. But I had the same, I mean, to your point, like it's the same oh, wow, this is my jaws on the floor. How do we, how do we move into this? Um, so how do you, so, so tell us then from, from that point, you jump in to where you are today. Talk, maybe talk us through that journey. And I'm, I'm very curious too, as you, as you share the journey of from 2016 to, to body swaps, um, maybe also just weave in your why. You know, you talked about working with, in, <laughs> with social media before and then being impressed by this new technology. So maybe weave that in as well. All right, I'm going to start with the why and then do a big detour. Perfect, um, perfect. When I did my first internship, I was in a business school. Um, I, As you may notice, I stutter sometimes, and it used to be worse. 
I did my first internship at a, you know, suited up strategic consultancy firm in Paris, which I'm not going to name. Um, I hated every minute of it, but I worked hard. And at the end of the six months, my N plus two, uh, who had never really meet me face to face, comes to me and say, all right, we, we're going to offer you the job when you graduate, we think you're smart, but because you stutter, don't expect to go too far, right? We're not going to put you in, in front of the client. And that's obviously the worst thing that you can say to anyone. So I couldn't pick up the phone for, for six months. And a year later, it was my last year at business school. Um, we had a weekend seminar, which is a thing you hate when you're a student. So I ticked a box without really knowing. It was called Managing Crisis. I arrived on the on a Friday morning in a room and 12 chairs in like a semicircle. And a teacher comes in with that long hair and sneakers, which was very unlike the business school I was in. And he looks at us and he goes, welcome to the improv theater class. And like, the what? And I, I wanted to jump out of the window, but I, I had no choice. Like I needed a grade, I couldn't go out. So he goes, okay, the first exercise, two of you are gonna go in the middle of the room. Um, one is going to do a political speech in a language that doesn't exist. And the other one is going to translate it sentence by sentence. And you, you know, my heart was in my stomach. It was horrible. I was like, well, okay, let's go for it. And you know, at that time I was so low confidence wise that I went for it. And it's the most fun I've had in a classroom for two days. And at the end of it, I was like, well, I, I can pretend to be a tree. I can invent a new language. I can go from being a parent to being a child like that. This is, this is bloody amazing. Right. Um, and so. I put in that, that's kind of the power of soft skills. I didn't know what it was back then, but that's what I realized. My manager had terrible soft skills and that guy here taught me something interesting. Going back to VR, 2016, 2017, we had the agency, we did like a 360 movie for a spy show. We did a, um, a climbing experience for Adidas, a raising the, the Champions League Cup. It was all super fun. And in parallel to that, we were giving classes in a business school in Geneva around um, VR as a new storytelling frontier for marketing. And always saying how, because it's embodied, um, the nature, the role of the creator, the role of the storyteller in VR is different. You don't control the camera, you don't control the editing, but you need to think of your, your audience as, yeah, as an embodied character and you have to be a lot more subtle. And so we are talking a lot about the, the UX of storytelling in VR and referring to a body of academic research that started to emerge in both the UK and the US around 2015, around embodiment, right? So there's been a lot of studies, what happened to your behavior in VR, but outside conscious and subconscious, short-term and long-term, when you are going to embody someone of a, of a different race, of a different height, of a different age, of a different, you know, uh, uh, all of that. And and I always use those examples to, to, to justify the power of, of embodiment as a behavioral um, change machine. You know, like you had Chris Mill talk about VR is the empathy machine. The other, no, first he stole that, that, that uh, sentence from Roger Ebert, who is a cinema critic. And, um, and two, um, VR is more than an empathy machine. It's a behavioral transformation machine. And there was one experience uh, by a UK researcher called Mel Slater, 
he had decided to say, if you're depressed, like profoundly clinically depressed, you have too much criticism towards yourself. You don't have any enough empathy towards yourself. So let's try and externalize that. So he had this idea of putting 15 patients, I believe, um, in, um, in a motion capture suit, created an avatar that looked like them, put them in front of the mirror in VR, and after taking virtual ownership of their, of their body, they would be confronted with a little girl crying, the character of little girl crying. They had to say nice, comforting words to that little girl for a few minutes, and then they would swap bodies with the little girl. So, and essentially watch themselves back um, give those, those comforting words. Essentially, they were giving themselves uh, uh, empathy. And the results were like significant and sustained. And this was like really kind of jaw-dropping experience. And in 2019, we were approached by uh, Sage, the publishers in education, and they said, it was the first time we had an education lead. It wasn't a spy story or something for Adidas. It was like, we want to try VR to train nurses in psychiatry. And we want to put you in the shoes of a nurse. Um, oh no, we want to put you in the shoes of a suicidal patient. Which, if you think for a few seconds, being suicidal is not an audiovisual stuff, right? You cannot visualize what, what it's like. And so there's always this danger of the you know, I'm going to put myself in someone else's shoes in VR. Um, and that's when we had the idea and say, well, this experience by Mel Slater, the whole body swapping stuff is brilliant. Can't we skip it, uh, spin it on its head? And instead of it being about the patient, it can be about the practitioner. So you're going to watch yourself give words of comfort to a suicidal patient to learn about how you come across as, as a doctor, or as a nurse. Um, and so back then it was only... There was just one prototype we did alongside like a London Zoo experience under the Thames watching fish, that literally those two in parallel. And then we, we get amazing feedback. So we said, you know, one accelerator after grants, after all of those, we said, okay, let's, let's drop the agency completely and focus on body swaps. So interesting. So you, you gave two different body swap examples. I've also heard of the, the one, it's a, there's a, an experience where you go in and you're sitting in front of Freud and he's behind a chair and you're sharing your problems and then you flip and you're now Freud and you get to hear yourself share your problem. And yeah. maybe that's, that's connected. Is that, can you talk a little bit about the types of content you're creating today? And is it, is it all connected to that idea of changing and giving people a different perspective and kind of seeing themselves in a mirror in a way, or have you branched out beyond that to other using other techniques as well? I think it's, I think it's, it's evolved. Um, the, pedagogical core remains around this idea of a flight simulator for soft skills, right? So we give you a, um, we're going to give you a, a realistic simulation of a workplace scenario um, in which you're going to uh, interact with virtual uh, characters in different way. Um, but it's safe, right? Because those characters, they're here 24 seven, they have no judgment, they have no feelings. So, you know, you, you can't hurt them. And one of the interactions is indeed that, you know, you speak, you watch yourself back and, and you get some data. But around that, we built a, um, a whole like scaffolding of exercises, you know, learn to observe characters that are good and bad at what they do, learn to make a choice by choosing the right question, self-reflect in, in different ways, um, et cetera. 
talk to us then, you, you know, I mean, is the focus now primarily education? And if so, I mean, are there some other specific use cases that you can share? Any that you get particularly excited about? Yeah, so it's it was a bit of a strange journey because we, we started um, in nursing education. Uh, then the second prototype we did, not a prototype, the first really paid big clients was safeguarding, safeguarding for NGOs. So imagine you're working for an NGO and someone working for the NGO or maybe a refugee comes to you and says, this happened, you know, I've been sexually assaulted. Um, how do you train in advance to have that kind of, con of conversation? All right, because those are super emotionally charged. There's a lot at stake. Things can go wrong in, in, in many ways. And the way people train for that today is you get into a, a windowless basement and there's a middle-aged white dude going through a PowerPoint. And at some point, you're going to do a role play pretending that Dave is a 17-year-old uh, re refugee. It just that doesn't work. It's inconsistent. It's, ex it's expensive. It's, there's no hands-on practice. You, you're, you're ticking a box. So that, that's how we, how we started. It was, it was safeguarding. Um, and then we moved back to what we thought we knew, which was the, the, the corporate world. So we did active listening, clear communication, in, inclusive leadership. Um, and we kept getting a, a lot of inbounds. We were you know, selling to, to, to corporate clients and still are. And I think this, the adoption curve now is, is, is starting to catch up in 22. But we had a lot of education institutions coming to us. And saying, you know, we, we want to try new modalities. You have to factor in that, um, you know, the, the pandemic, right? So there was this whole shakedown. I was like, do we need to reinvent ourselves as, as education perspective? Is it some things worked during COVID, some didn't, but it was clearly this, this opening of, hmm, maybe, maybe remote learning doesn't have to be shit. Maybe, maybe we can give access to underserved population to something a little bit better than a recorded video or a, or a click-through deck. Um, and that's what was interesting with education institution is, I'm going to say that a little bit bluntly, um, but for a bank to invest in active listening simulation in VR for middle managers is often perceived as a nice to have that's hard to measure. For, the, for a further education college in the UK um, whose funding depends on their ability to help their students actually get job and make a living, preparing them for job interviews is mission critical. It's so close to their heart. And because of that, they are much more keen to try new things. They are educators. That's, that's who they are. That's their nature. And so they're really happy to to try new ways of, of educating as long as, as it delivers. And so that's why counterintuitively, it's, it's actually a lot faster to start working with education institution than it is sometimes to work with, uh, with corporate, at least in our experience. I'd love to zoom in there a little bit. You know, we've, there's a lot of educational content being created and some of it's very subject matter specific, frog dissection, et cetera. What you're talking about with job interview simulation, could you share that story specifically? And then if there's any other, it seems like you guys are finding an interesting niche uh, in, in terms of the education space that isn't necessarily very deep in subject matter, like a, you know, frog dissection, but it's, it's a life skill. Is that, can you talk a little bit about that example? And if there's any other ones that come to mind? And also I'm just thinking too, you know, 
talk to me as a as if I were a skeptic. Okay, so you you know how how do you help someone do a better job at a job interview in a VR? You know by spending time in a VR headset. I mean, yeah, walk walk us through that. You guys went to university, I presume, right? How how did you Barely. how did you train for job interview? <laughs> say say it again. How, how did you train for job interviews? Do you remember? I think there was a gateway class where you. Yeah, I mean, it's all you're reading text. Maybe maybe you you do some simulation in the classroom, and you take turns partnering up. And but it's I'm thinking yeah, I had no training, <laughs> minimal to <laughs> no, great, very very basic. Good good question. How how good were you at your first interview? Do you remember versus how good you would be now? Yeah, no, that's a good point. Not great. I think you I think, you know, I, think I showed up. I thought I could. I thought I just had to show up with a good resume. And the guy afterward was like, "Hey, you have a good resume, but you can't just show up. You have to actually engage <laughs> in in the uh, interview." So it's it's really like being good at a job interview is um is something you learn. Like there's a set of techniques that you can acquire, regardless of your experience and how good your your, your CV is. And you know the basics are how to sit, how to look at someone, how to breathe to manage your anxiety and and your nerves. Then you're like, okay, you might think you are. A, uh, I'm a team player. All right, great. Everyone says they're a team player. No one has ever said I'm not a team player in an interview. How do you prove that you're a team player? How do you build a story from your experience that shows that you're a team player and that relates to the company and the job you're applying for? Then if I throw a weird question at you, like, um, would you rather be feared or loved? Okay, weird question. You probably didn't prepare for it. And um, how do you answer that? You're probably going to say, oh, I prefer to be loved because love is nice or whatever. That doesn't matter. That's not the meaning of the question. The meaning of the question is I want to get to understand how you react to something that, that is uh, unexpected. And so you're going to learn the car technique, which is context, action, and results. Why are you asking me the question? Okay, I'm going to give you, etc. So those are a set of techniques. If you master them, then you can do a simulated interview in VR or with your friend or or with a career advisor, and you will be a lot better. And But in the classroom, and even with career departments, you don't get to learn those. Right? You don't get to, to, to do the drills. It's like being a football player or soccer player, as you would do it, and play 11 asides all day, every day. You don't do that. You do drills, right? So that's why it's interesting, the, the whole VR approach, because you let people practice autonomously, do the drills, stack up the techniques, and then apply them in a, in, in a simulation. Are, are you utilizing AI? So to an extent, um, we're using AI. So we're using uh, speech-to-text, and then we're performing um, analysis on semantics, on speech-to-motion, then there's the whole body language and, and, and kinematics. What we're not using AI for, which we would like to, but I don't think the, the state of technology allows it, is to have infinite believable conversations with uh, with avatars. At the moment, we have a set of exercises, so um, we will get there eventually, but I just don't think AI is just quite there yet for something as subtle as uh, telling a suicidal patient how she can cope, cope better with her days. You would need a yeah. subtlety of reading, emotional um, input that just doesn't exist yet. So, so you've got universities that are willing to pay for the content because they're seeing an uptick in their students getting jobs. I mean, that's kind of the the bottom line, I guess. That's that's what motivates them to do it. Yes, I mean, there's um there, there's many reasons. 
um, why why universities want want to do it. So we have a grant with Meta that's open at the at the moment. So we're receiving applications. So I'm reading the applications uh, all day every day. And one of the question is, what challenges are you looking to to solve? Um, they are they're very diverse. Uh, one is about uh, the access, right? There's access to great learning for underserved populations that cannot pay ninety thousand dollars a year to come to the to the to the campus. So equality of education is is a big one. Um, another one is to plug that gap where you might have you know well educated parent that put you in a good institution and you know how to come across with impact, and some kids who just as smart and just as motivated want simply because they didn't have 20 or 25 years of being surrounded by the right people in the right environment. And and you can level the playing field a, a little bit. And I think a lot of education institutions understand that a university or a college is not a place anymore, it's a force. And more and more, you're not measured by uh, the salary you get your your students or the amount of papers that are, that are published uh, every year in academic journals. You're measured by the impact you can have on the community around you. And I think the, the world is changing in that in that way. Uh, and that's that's very good. So it's it's not just get, getting jobs. I think there's an idea of bigger impact and the SDG number four around quality of education and all that. Definitely. Where do you see virtual reality and augmented reality going in education specifically? I mean, it seems like there's a beachhead here with job simulation, some of these soft skills, but where do you see it? Where do you see it going? Um, what's interesting with some of the colleges we we speak to, well, two years ago when we were talking to to educational institution, we we had to sell the hardware as well as the software. And when we sell, I don't mean sell the actual object. I mean sell VR as a medium for learning, right? And it's a little bit like you invented Photoshop. And you had to explain to people what a keyboard is, right? Or a screen. Um, and no one would buy a laptop just for Photoshop. So, well, some people might, but it's it's a much ha- harder sell. Now we get a lot of colleges that come to us and say, "Hey, look, we're using VR with our healthcare students for this. We're using VR with our sports students for that. With the business students for this." Um, and I don't know how fast we're gonna get there, but we're gonna. We're going to reach that kind of like utility point where there's a threshold from which the number of use cases per institution makes it worthwhile for individuals to have their own headsets. So at the moment, it's VR is more often than not in um, somewhere in the library or a dedicated VR lab. Some have, you know, borrow your headset, bringing home type stuff. But that's because yeah, you wouldn't ask your students to buy a headset if they're going to use it five five hours a year. Um, but there is a point where it's, it's going to become a, a, a search screen. If you think about it, your your quests cost what three hundred dollars. Um, the price of a of a, a of a book, an academic book, is seventy five dollars to one hundred dollars. So it's not it's not that crazy. So when we reach that, that utility point, suddenly you're going to start seeing some institution deploying at real scale. Up until the moment, like right now, you wouldn't go to university if you didn't have a laptop and a, f- and a smartphone. It would just be weird. Um, and and as I think at some point, we're going to reach a stage where mixed reality, I don't know exactly what the, the, you know, the split is going to be, of course, but that's going to be your, your third screen. And that's going to be the, there's this idea of the, the university of the future 
uh, organized in layers and uh, the core is the campus experience. That's where the face-to-face -face is the most important. And as you go out in layers, you go further into the metaverse, right? And the outer layer is students who never set foot on campus. And how do you give those students an experience that's as close as possible, not as in, oh, the walls of the, the virtual university look the same as the real thing. I don't think it's the point. Just right. um, yeah. the, the sense of belonging to a community, the, the engagement you have with the, with the learning is, is, uh, 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 is comparable. And, and obviously that outer layer is, is the accessible one, right? It's the one where you can study at the best university in the world without having to, to you know, get in debt for the rest of your life. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful, and that's maybe wishful thinking, but that immersive technologies in general are going to be the conduit that enable this whole vision of, you know, the MOOC, the massive online courses that kind of took off, but not really because the engagement dropped very fast. I'm hoping that that's the technology that's going to pass the threshold of engagement to make remote learning fun. Yeah. I think what's interesting, I mean, we're seeing a lot of really powerful results from different companies we work with when it comes to either retention or reducing time to learn. And when I, I mean, some very significant data and to me, you know, listening to you talk, it's like, well, that's, that's great. And that's really important, but that's kind of half the equation. The other half is, is the accessibility, um, which makes it even more exciting. And the engagement hear, and, and the ability to the engage, have communities right. online. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, so to me, I mean, it's just powerful. So how, how far away are we from that in education? What's your prediction? Uh, to, to be honest, I'm not a good uh, crystal ball gazer. If I, if I was, I would be probably like richer now. I wouldn't have invested in crypto like that old thing, you know? So, <laughs> so no, I, 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 I don't know. I, I, I just know 2022 has been a very, very interesting year. You know, every year we say, oh, it's, it's going to be the year in VR. I think for us, we, we've seen adoption. There's, we just um, signed a deal with a group of, of 10 colleges in the UK who bought 500 headsets and a three-year license, and they, they, they're planning to train every single one of their students on job interview and, and presentation skills. And we're not talking like Ivy League innovation budget to spare. No, no, no. That's going to be core part yeah. of the curriculum. Um, and that's new, right? Because that's when you cross the threshold from mm -hmm. innovators trying to validate stuff and, 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 and push out some research paper, papers, which we need to get as the early majority. That's everyone's going to yeah. have to do it. And they're not going to do VR because it's fun or new. They're going to do it because it's the best, most efficient way to learn. Because it works. Yeah. I mean, that, we're definitely seeing, it feels like, uh, you talk about 2022. I mean, last year when we would go to conferences, it felt like a topic of discussion was still, does VR work? Where this year it's felt more, how do you scale VR? Yeah. And so you talk about the challenges a year or two ago of even selling the hardware you know, or getting buy-in to the technology and not just being um, kind of this fun thing on the side. What challenges today, like what are, what are the challenges you still face when you go, when you're going to go roll out 500 devices across 10 universities? Uh, that, that, that's it. I think that's the biggest challenge. And I, I don't know how to, so one thing we said, say to, to institution is for, for every pound you're going to spend on hardware and software, you need two pounds for, for, for change management. Um, you need to procure the hardware, you need to manage the fleet, you need to train your facilitators, 
you need to communicate to the faculty, you need to communicate to the students, you need to measure the results, you need to... It's, it's, it's never ending. It's the idea of the whole product model, right? You can have the best VR simulation in the center. If you don't have all the human element around it to make it happen, it's never going to happen. And, and it, I mean, to your point, obviously you guys are, uh, ArborXR, you exist to solve that challenge and that challenge is, is real. And that at the moment is almost a, a, a glass ceiling when it comes to scale that is not related to the appetite for the learn from the learners, that is not related to the appetite from the faculty, that is not related to the technology itself, whether it's the performance of the cost, it's related to that, how how do we scale? How do we go from the one laptop in the office to everyone having one uh, at home? That's that's the era we, we're in right now, I think. That's interesting. If you were looking back, I mean, you, you've been in this for a long time now, there's a lot of people who are just now getting started, and, and particularly maybe if we if we dialed into schools and universities that are looking at a, doing a pilot project. What's what's the advice? You, I mean, you gave a great piece of advice there. Spend two pounds for every one pound on hardware and software, just on you know the training and, and all the other stuff around it. But what other advice do you have for somebody starting uh, with a with a pilot project? Um, a couple. One is. If you have a trouble with buy-in, so what we found is generally when we enter um, universities, it's really the, the dean that comes to us and, and pushes it down. It's quite often someone who is a VR champion, an educator, or someone who works in library or in learning innovation is like, I want to bring it to the campus because I know it works. I believe in it. But so you need to help them get that buy-in. And, and it sounds very, very silly, but... Um, to get buy-in, you need to put headsets on people's heads. Um, otherwise, they're just not going to listen to you. So that part of the equation is get people to put headsets on. The other part of the equation is run your pilot um, as small as possible. There's a lot of free, I mean, we do it, but I'm sure most vendors would do it. You, you can get like trial licenses for free. You can get a couple of headsets for $500 if you go refurbished, even cheaper. And most apps have data, They're like built in the app. And if they don't, you can run like questionnaires with, with Google Forms or, you know, it's, it's, and so if you get to your faculty member and said, try it out, get that wow effect that we discussed, you know, the Van Gogh or the roller coaster, like get the wow effect and see what the students are, are, are saying, then you can generally unlock uh, some, some buy-in funding to do something a little bit more significant. What is your, so let's say you get the Dean in the room, he's going to try to put on the headset for the first time. What's your go-to content for that? Go-to experience. Um, well, it's body swaps. <laughs> well, yeah, um, you got a lot of them though. I'm saying which, yeah, which one of your, if you're no, going to no, pick so we, one we did, and you um, say you've got we, five we minutes. A, yeah. No, so, so, well, exactly. So, so we learned the hard way before we were like, oh, which module do you want to do? The gender inclusion or the job interview? The job interview one is 90 minutes. Um, and even the gender inclusion, which is one of the shortest, you only get to do the body swaps, which is our wow moment after about 13 minutes. That's just too long in the context of a demo. So yeah, we built a, 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 a medley uh, sort, of, sort of module that lasts eight minutes and you do a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and a little bit of that. And so you get to experience the, the breadth of the pedagogical approach uh, without actually doing the learning. It's more about, okay, I get how this works, I get the quality of it, and I get pedagogically what I, what I could do with it. That's brilliant for anybody listening. That that's a. I'm just gonna highlight that. That's such a great 
I think nailing the demo, oftentimes with key stakeholders, you only have one shot and they need to get that aha moment that it, it may be for some, it, it happens immediately. So I love that. So eight minutes and, and they get a range of different uh, types of experiences and they also get to see your approach. Yeah. And, and we, we do something that um, is maybe slight, I wouldn't say sneaky, but <laughs> I'm going to explain, it's going to make sense. So the first element of the middle comes from the gender inclusion demo. And in that modality, we call it an observation. You are meeting with Sam and Sophie. So you have a body, you work in that company and you see those two characters around the table and they're coming to you to get to, to give you progress on a, on a project and your job, they're going to talk to one another and your job is to click on the trigger. Every time you hear or see Sam on the left, say or do something that's, that's inappropriate uh, towards Sophie. And at the back, you have the screen, you have 10 shots, right? And you have eight behaviors to, 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 to pick. And you essentially scored in real time. If you get it, it appears on the screen. If you click and you make a mistake, you get a noise. When in the room, there's generally more than one stakeholder, which means there's one that is in VR being essentially assessed in real time on their capacity to identify a sexist <laughs> asshole, whilst everyone else is looking at them. No one is bored that moment ever. Because there is, there is a lot, there's a little bit at stake. Um, so that, 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 that works uh, quite well. That's funny. And do you, do you tie into the, like the, the existing LMS at these universities or how does that, how do you work in, I mean, how do you connect into LMS the kind is of the learning curriculum? management system. It's what universities use to track user progress and restore it all. So, um, oddly enough, we hear a lot about, we would like to integrate it, but at the moment it's, it's has materialized only in a couple of times. Um, I, I reckon that further down the line, it will be systematic. Um, what do we hear maybe more about from universities and colleges? I talked about that, that, you know, that point of, of utility, the idea that you need to, the more use cases you have in any given single institution, the more, you know, VR is going to, is going to start to be embedded. And what colleges and universities tell us is, well, there's those 32 apps that we would like to use. We love them. We tested them. They're great, but they have 32 different pricings, 32 different platforms, different stakeholders, different uh, data privacy uh, 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 policy, and it's a nightmare. And so I'm, I'm waiting for an entity to act as the distribution middle ground that makes it easy for, for the institution to go, okay, here's the catalog. I want to buy this and this and this for that many users for that long. And I know by clicking here that I make sure that the data is used uh, properly because it's been uh, validated and so on. Um, and that's, I, I don't know who's going to do that. Is it going to be one of the manufacturers? Is it going to be one of you guys? Is it going to be one of the big players existing in the industry? Um, it's, that's going to be very interesting to follow. Interesting. I've got a, we're coming up on time here, but I've got a hot take. I know you said you don't, you don't do crystal balls, but here's one that I think you maybe have a good answer for. So 10 years from now, uh, looking back, what surprises you about XR? What's something that surprises us? Um, one, I have absolutely no idea because I believe in that Amara's law. Do you know Amara's law? You heard about that, that idea? Uh, sure. Tell us. So uh, Amara's law is um, you you with new technologies you tend to um, to to overestimate what happens the first five years and to underestimate what happens the following simply because 
there's a compounded evolution yeah, that right that and so having started in social media in 2009 um i had no idea that it would lead to trump being elected uh but to also <laughs> to the to the uh, the arab spring and that you would have tiktoks and that that's it's um so i i honestly i cannot answer your your question i think i don't think any of us has if I ask you what are going to be the, the top three use cases for, for extended reality in 2031, I don't think any of us would get the three of the top five right. I, I just don't think it's, 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 uh, it's, it's possible yet. That's a fair point. Okay, I've got one more for you then. This one here, this one, uh, and you could, this could be on any range of topics, but when you look out into the future a bit, and again, I know you're not, when you look in the future, what are you most excited about um, when it comes to AR, VR, AI, crypto, blockchain, metaverse? Like, what kind of, what gets you personally excited? Um, there was this analogy when I when I was teaching in engineer. I was I was doing about augmented reality, mixed reality, and and and, and VR. And there was this idea that when you create in a VR, you god, and when you create for augmented reality, you're shaman. And what I mean by this is, uh, in VR, you create something that doesn't exist, right? You create ex nihilo, a world in which you're going to be entirely uh, embodied. Whereas augmented reality, it's a little bit like a shaman in the way that you, you're making a layer of information appear where it didn't exist before. Let me give you an example. Um, you could be at a conference and you have your mixed reality glasses and you, you turn on the LinkedIn app. And suddenly above everyone's head, you see, oh, here's an investor, here's a client, here's a vendor. Um, you could have a dating version of that. You could have a nature's loving version of that where you see what tree that is. Um, you can have a historical version of that where you walk in Soho in London and you have the music uh, 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 history of the neighborhood. And I think connecting the, the humongous digital layer of information and contextualizing it visually in real time, as you go about your life, essentially re-enchanting the world, that, that I think is very, very interesting. Scary as well, but exciting. Yeah, it can be a little scary. Um, but Chris, this has been uh, really, really good. We appreciate so much your time. I know you're a busy man. And we'll have info about how our listeners can find body swaps. But if people want to hear from you uh, specifically, uh, is LinkedIn the best place to find you? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter, but I don't think I sent a single tweet besides complaining to airlines for about five years. So that's probably <laughs> that. well, I, that actually sounds interesting. I might want to. I may want to follow you for that reason. But uh, it works. It works very well. It's kind of a kind of a shortcut to getting heard. That's, awesome. that's great. Well, it's been good, Chris. I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Cheers. Bye, Gwen. Thanks, I guess. Well, man, Chris is a very impressive guy, and I, to me, you know, we talk a lot about the learning enhancements uh, that companies are finding from VR in, in the training space. But listening to Chris talks, like really the same thing is happening in education. And, and I leave that episode feeling really excited about what's going to happen for VR in the EDU space. Yeah, they really are cutting edge. I, going back to my you know background as a marketer and as a video a storyteller, I just think it's so fascinating, his focus on embodiment and using VR. We've all talked about VR as an empathy machine, 
But the idea of VR as a behavioral transformation machine, uh, it got me excited, made me think that we've all had that experience watching a movie and feeling transported. We've all put on a headset and stepped into somebody else's shoes and Body Swaps is using those mechanics to really make a difference in the world. So it gets me personally really excited. Absolutely. Well, thank you all so much for joining us and don't forget to subscribe wherever you consume podcasts and we look forward to seeing you next time.